Hello everybody, Stephen Platt here, the host of the Cinema Catch-Up Club, just recording a quick message before we get into this week's episode. This week's episode was recorded over Zoom. Uh, the reason for that is because uh, here in Western Australia, where we're recording, uh, we are currently experiencing a, a pretty significant increase in the number of uh, COVID-19 cases in the community. So episodes over the next few weeks, possibly even the next couple of months, will alternate between uh, being recorded in person and online over services such as Zoom. Uh, simply based on um, how everyone is feeling, what our case numbers are like, and also uh, partly to help, uh, because some people uh, who are guests on this programme work in jobs uh, that include um, schools and the health department and things like that. So uh, in order for them to um, practice best social distancing requirements, we don't want to exclude them from the programme, so we will record over the internet. So this week's episode is one such episode. I just bring it up because the audio quality uh, will be different. Um, the audio quality is not as uh, strong as it usually is when we're recording in person, uh, but it still sounds pretty good. You still understand what we're saying, and uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, uh, long awaited, much delayed, but finally our February film review is here. It is Ed Wood. Uh, fashionably late, we'll call this one. Um, and we have, as always, someone who has seen the film before and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it is Dr. Carmen Dolly. How are you, Dr. Carmen? I think you mean the fashionably late Dr. Carmen Dolly today. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Stephen, for having me. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I, I was going to leave that one out, but as you've mentioned it, um, <laughs> how how was your bountifully long sleeping? It was a very nice sleep in, but um, yeah, for those of you who don't know, my my alarm did not go off because my phone died and I slept and slept and slept uh, through when we were meant to start recording. So um, yes, we're starting fashionably late for the fashionably late for podcast. So yes, very, very appropriate. Extremely <laughs> fitting. Uh, Dr. Carmen, um, just, just for the folks at home, um, what, what do you do when you're not on film podcasts? Like what, what's, what's, you're a doctor, we know that much, but, but uh, yes. what, what are you doing with the, with the old doctoring? Uh, but yeah, that's a really good question because I have, uh, I've finished my written exams and I'm sort of in a limbo at the moment where I don't know if I've passed or not. I'm still waiting on uh, results. So um, I am not studying so much for exams, but just sort of working out what I'm doing in my free time. But uh, yeah, so we're fostering kittens at the moment. So we've got four five-week-old kittens who are very gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um uh, as the year picks up, we'll probably do more uh, costuming and events for costuming as well, that which we do for charity, um, and uh, also a lot of local theatre as well. So um, I'm hoping to direct something again next year and have directed Clue last year and uh, also doing a bit of acting as well myself at the moment. Superb. And Ed Wood. Uh, we'll start with the film. Um, what, what do you know about the film, Ed Wood? Um, I know it has Johnny Depp and uh, it's directed by Tim Burton and it's uh, Jason also mentioned it had Vincent D'Onofrio in which I'm looking forward to mm. uh, and that's kind of about it okay. that's that's pretty much it yeah and and the the uh, the figure himself the the, the real Mr Ed Wood uh, well, what do you what do you know about uh, his life Pretty much next to nothing. I knew. I know he made a lot of B movies, including Plan Nine from Outer Space. Um, again, Jason mentioned that maybe I'll enjoy this film because I like mystery science theater. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Okay. Well, luckily uh, for you and for me, because I also haven't seen this film, we have someone who has seen Ed Wood. It is Brett Cullen. How you doing, Brett? Hello. Not a doctor. No. Uh, not yet. That's okay. Not well. Yeah. Not yet. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> As I say on every podcast, we'll see, we'll yeah. see. Uh, for the folks at home, Brett, because um, this is your first one for uh, the year 2022 as well, um, uh, you're not a doctor, but but what are you? What 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 are you when you're not here? Oh, I hate when you ask me this question. <laughs> um, I guess, ostensibly, I'm a professional academic. 
Mm. Uh, but that is one of many feathers in my very overloaded hat. Um, just finished a run at Fringe 2022 in Captain Spaceship Goon Squad, uh, playing dual characters. So the protagonist, you know, main character for the crew, and then also a very broken uh, puppet carried around by a very disheveled, hairy man in a very bad suit. Okay. Uh, so lots of puppetry. And uh, the puppet was uh, Lord Fluffington, who was mm. a little lamb who I stole from my son. <laughs> uh, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, good. It was a lot of fun to just be able to stand very still and then just have your arms do all the work. But holy moly, was my arms sore after all of that. Indeed. Just, um, just, just turning outwards, turning your wrist outwards to look away from your body is a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, you have to let all. And I've done a bit of puppetry, but yeah. But it was good. It was good. So, yes, my day job is, is, uh, is academic consultancy. Um, with a specialty in tech and especially trying to teach a lot of people how to use online learning a bit better and even just convincing people that online learning is something you need to know because if you don't know it, you're probably not going to have a job in five to 10 years. So mm. here to help. Um, but yes. Uh, Ed Wood then, uh, the, the film and the person. What, what, what can you Wood tell Ed us? Wood. Yeah, what can you tell us Ed about Ed Wood? Ed Wood. Edward Edward. Edward Wood. <laughs> Edward Wood. Um, or Edward Wooden. We'll have to watch the film to find out. Mm. Um, but yes, it is like a, we were saying earlier on the pre-call. It is uh, pre-Helen Bonham Carter, Johnny Depp in every single Burton film. So it's sort of Mars Attacks era where he was still getting this really great ensemble cast together. Um, Johnny Depp, of course, is in it, but it's not necessarily the same as, you know, Sweeney Todd or something like that, where it's, you know, just them doing them. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been one of my favorites for a long time because uh, just the approach he takes with it is very cool. It was very cool. Very authentic. Also, a lot of bongos and a lot of theremin on the soundtrack, which I can appreciate. Okay. <laughs> and, and in terms uh -huh. of um, Edward's, um, the real Edward's uh, filmography, um, do, do you have a favourite? Is it Plan 9 or, or is there another one that's maybe less known that you'd say is, um, is one of his better ones? I've only seen Plan 9 all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces of his other ones. Um, but as you'll see, he has a particular technique of filmmaking that um, pervades a lot of his work. Um, but yes, I haven't seen the film he makes in the early part of this movie, this biopic or biopic, depending on who and who you are and when you are. Um, but yeah, Plan 9 from Outer Space is a disaster piece. It's, um, it is very, very long. It is very, very bad. But in, in modern terms, you have like the found footage film festival. I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Mm. So they make films just from stock footage and from stuff they've found on old reels and old tapes and things like that. And they make a film and they put it into like an, uh, a theater showing where everyone comes along and has lots of fun. So he's really, really Im instrumental in what would later become like media mixed media mashup stuff of taking existing content and transforming it into this other thing. So even though he probably wasn't appreciated in his time, if you slot him into the like pop culture timeline, it was actually quite an important figure, which I think is why there's a film like this made. Um, and you can definitely see how his work would have influenced a very young Tim Burton. So, okay. As we watch. Excellent. Well, with all that being said, shall we watch Ed Wood? Let's do yes. it. Okay, for those of you listening at home, pop in those DVDs, load up those streaming services, and pull on those Angora sweaters as we watch Ed Wood. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Ed Wood. And by we, I, of course, mean Brett Cullen. Hello. And Dr. Carmen Doley. Hello. Uh, Carmen, that was your first time watching Ed Wood. What did you think of the film? Yeah, it was good. Um, I, I actually quite enjoyed it. I don't like Tim Burton. I don't like Johnny Depp. And yet I 
did not mind this film. Um, I, I thought it was very well shot. Like the cinematography was great. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just quite a compelling and fun story. I mean, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the um, musical Gypsy in that you've got a main character who is pursuing something that really they should not be pursuing to the detriment of everyone around them. But right. it was um, it was really interesting. And I just found myself, like, looking up all the people that were portrayed in the film as we went. I thought it was, uh, yeah, just a, just a very... Um, uh, enjoyable thing to watch i kept forgetting that this was a biopic um Ooh. because partly because of the fact biopic it was shot i tend to go with biopic but uh you know um that's that's to each their own uh, i'm not as fussy yeah. on that one i feel as though that stylistic choice of putting the whole thing in black and white and making it look like one of ed wood's movies throughout the film itself sort of helped me forget that oh that's Johnny Depp oh that's Martin Lando oh there's Bill Murray in fact Bill Murray was the one that I did struggle with because he's so recognizably Bill Murray but most Mm. of the others sort of blended in really really well into that world and Mm. I I thought it was a really interesting choice uh Brett for them to to take um the style of, of Plan 9 from Outer Space and try and weave that through the whole biopic well, I mean, it kicks off with that introduction, which was, you know, how a lot of those films were introduced, especially, you know, the vampire and then which became Elvira and those introductions of, you know, the twilight zone of you are entering a world of mystery and da da da. And for the film to kick off like that, I think it sets the tone really, really well mm. because it is, I think the way you can describe the whole film is that it is very optimistic. It is, it's definitely Edward's perspective, but it is optimism. It's like lurching from minor success to minor success to minor success to accrue all those things to get to the point where it's like, okay, now we're making plan nine. But yeah, it was shot kind of very classically. There wasn't a lot of camera movement, a lot of sort of locked off shots. It was shot in a way that was honoring the time period where there wasn't a lot of flashy camera moves and glitz and glamour and stuff. It was a very kind of down to earth style, which I think was needed because Johnny Depp as Ed Wood was, you know, endlessly, you know, that naive energy Mm. that he pushed through, which I mentioned earlier seems to be where his Willy Wonka evolved from. Yeah. Because Willy Wonka, if you look at that, he's like that Ed Wood turned up to 20. Mm-hmm. Even down mm. to like the dentures and the teeth and the mannerisms and that like childlike wonder. Um, and I know that this is based on letters. I forget what the book is called, something ecstasy or something like that. Or and it was letters that Ed Wood wrote, and that's how Tim Burton got onto this story. And there was obviously a lot of darkness in his life, but that's not really in the film, which mm. I think is good. It's it's not the standard, or it's not the you know pre this Tim Burton where it's gothic and dark and harrowing and you know strangely kind of um shadowed and that kind of thing it does play out like a serial you know like a 1950s kind of film where it's quite flat shot quite flat it's shot for black and white like there's that great scene of the dp going i don't know i'm colorblind i like the dark gray (laughs) um but yeah i think it really honored what what Edward was doing and like the period it was coming up. Yeah. I think you made a good point of it kind of subsumes you into the genre really, really quickly. And it doesn't really matter about, you know, the, the sensational stuff going on. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm watching this story. And that's right. It's a real person that existed that made these films. Mm. So yeah, I, I really do enjoy this film. It is not as Tim Burton-y as Tim Burton would later become. I yes. think is, is a lot like mm. this and then Mars attacks in something I think it was like 96 and then Sleepy Hollow and then mm. Sweeney Pod and then you're into full Tim Burton being Tim Burton as opposed to Tim Burton being you know a filmmaker like yeah there's Batman Batman Returns Beetlejuice that kind of thing but I feel like this and Mars attacks is a really interesting period for Tim Burton of being not not relying super heavily on gothic but going back to 
fifties, you know, paranormal mystery stuff, mm. you know, flying horses and the fascination with those, the paranormal and that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, that's how Ed Wood was. He was apparently very infectiously energetic. Mm. Um, there was the thing was like, how do you do this? How do you get all your friends baptized to make a monster movie? And it's like, you have to have a cult of personality to be able to pull that off. And I think, yeah, yeah. Did a good job at it. Yeah, he's he's definitely someone that's after he sees solutions everywhere he goes, um, which which I think is um, is is important for um, you know independent filmmakers in general. But I, I think it's quite interesting yeah. having um, Johnny Depp in in this role as Edward. I quite liked him in this role, Carmen, and I know you're a first time viewer as well. Um, obviously, Johnny Depp. Uh, particularly today in 2022 is a very known quantity you know he's he's Captain Jack Sparrow he's been in all of these things there's stuff with his personal life that people have very strong opinions on and, and all of that mm. sort of uh, stuff mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious as a, as a contemporary viewer how was it for you seeing him in this role as as another real person yeah, I guess, um, the, I mean, the reason I didn't mind him in this so much is I find that um, in a lot of his films, sort of in the last 20 years or so, he, and I don't know if this is sort of a directing choice or, or what, but it seems like he's almost trying to upstage everyone else that he's against. Like, it's just he's not playing anything remotely realistic and it's mm. just you know even in you know Pirates of the Caribbean films and, and things like that where he's not the lead he's always um, playing this character that tends to upstage everyone else and I find that quite frustrating mm. um, whereas here maybe it's because he's playing a real person maybe it's just the fact that he was fairly early on in his career but um, it just seems like he he blended in a lot more with the people he was working with tr- rather than sort of trying to sort of be more prominent, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he just sort of, he seemed to uh, sort of give like sort of a more realistic grounded performance. And yes, he was optimistic and a bit of a colder personality, but it, it still was a real person who, he, he was still playing a real person and and still um, sort of fitting in well with the film rather than than sort of being too prominent, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, ab- mm. absolutely. It's a very strong. Ca- oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it had a very strong cast around him. Like, mm. Lando was incredible. Mm. It really was- did. Yeah. Yeah. Martin Lando was, having- um, was well, he, he won an Academy Award for, for this mm. role, um, which mm. is pretty, pretty sensational. He, he was at times just sort of how we, we all sort of collectively imagined Bella Lugosi to be, but also, um, you know, he's, talking he's taking morphine and he's talking about you know women's tits and things like that and you know stuff that we don't associate with on-screen Lugosi and it was yeah I, I think I thought it was a fabulous performance from him and I, I I just really enjoy Martin Landau and I hadn't seen this one it's 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 cracking it's absolutely cracking he's he's great what else has he been in Oh, so many things. Uh, but the one that always comes <laughs> yeah. to mind for me is Space 1999, <laughs> which oh, is, okay. <laughs> yes, uh, a science fiction TV series from the 1970s. But um, that's that's just because I watched a lot of it um, as, as a youngster. <laughs> um, but yeah, Martin Landau, um, who I'm trying to remember when he passed away, because it, it feels like it wasn't that long ago. It was uh, in... You're looking it up? Yeah, 1993. So quite a while ago. No. This, come, this, when, was, when did this come out? This was 94, so... Oh, sorry, sorry. 2017. 2017, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> a little bit of difference there. Yeah. My wife died in 1993. So. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. But, yeah, so, um, you know, he's, he, the TV series Mission Impossible, um, which I think Brett said just before, um, he mm. was in North by Northwest with um, uh, old Cary Grant. Um, that, that, that was probably his big sort of main role, mm. but he, he sort of mm. jumped between mm. TV and, and film quite a lot. He was in a, a very good episode of Columbo, I remember. Oh, that's good. <laughs> in, looks like he was in Frankenweenie, which is another Tim Burton joint. Oh, I, haven't, okay. I haven't seen Frankenweenie. But uh, no, me neither. There we go. It's, 
Burton squared. Okay. You know. So, so Brett, are you a, a fan of Tim Burton at the moment? Um, what, what are your thoughts on not, Tim Burton? Not recent Tim Burton, that's for sure. But I think like Batman Returns was one of the first superhero films I ever watched and it was mm-hmm. terrifying. It still is. It's so, it's so unlike the Captain America's you get today. Like mm-hmm. Marvel have gone mm-hmm. a bit dark now, but you know, Batman was a big franchise and it was one of the very earliest superhero films. And you've got Penguin biting a guy's nose off mm. and like, you know, Penguin's kidnapping a baby from a, yeah, it was so full on, like that Gothic styling of the clowns and the design and stuff. So, but then I realized he was a filmmaker that was a bit broader than that. And I think I enjoyed this between Johnny Depp's performance, which I think was really good because if you take that performance and look at where it goes with Willy Wonka and um, uh, what's the other vampire film he was in recently? It was not oh, oh, the, the shadow. Well, in, not not shadow? shadows. Um, yeah, uh, in the, something in hot the topic. The movie. Um, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. And he's playing the same character. I feel like he's either Tim Burton. Uh, sorry, Johnny Depp in the last twenty years has either played Jack Sparrow or a version of this Edward character. And I feel like this Ed Wood character kicked off that chunk for him and it just kept growing and growing and getting more and more exaggerated because Tim Burton's there going, yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah, you do that. Mm. You know, like no one needed Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Dark Shadows, I believe, was the the vampire film. Mm. Garbage. Awful film. (laughs) Awful film. Okay. But yes, this era of Tim Burton. Yeah, this era of Tim Burton, the like the 90s into the early 2000s was excellent because mm. he hadn't like locked into making a Tim Burton film. Mm. So the story um, of this film is that Ed Wood is a young up and coming independent filmmaker who is plagued by being a pretty bad filmmaker, which is a, <laughs> a bit of a problem, but also um he's, he's not really able to to catch a break he, he attempts to go for the usual channels the studio system uh even going to um like less reputable studios and trying to get his foot in the door there and he does but the films are not very good because his approach to his craft is sort of um i, I would call it lazy but um i think that the <laughs> way that the film depicts it is um he is someone that is because he's so optimistic and he's got these ideas of like capturing the realness of things where it's like you do it in one take because that's the reality of the thing. Um, he, he tries to, to have that in his films and the films are largely flops, but he does have this really lovely friendship with Bella Lugosi. And I think that the film choosing to focus on that as sort of the main through line throughout the film was, was a really strong choice. Um, we recently did um, the, Frida Kahlo uh, biopic Frida from 2002 on this program mm. and that that biopic very similarly it, even though it's called Frida um, is really more about Frida and her uh, on again off again husband Diego Rivera and it's about their relationship and that that film is very much framed around from when Frida met Diego till um, the end of her life and in this film the film starts pretty much um, with, with when Ed meets Bella Lugosi and it finishes not long after Bella is gone. You know, Plan 9 from Outer Space is very much framed as being the, giving the grand send off to, to Bella Lugosi that um, Ed Wood felt that he deserved and also Ed realising his ambition of making what he hopes is a masterpiece. Um, and I, I do have to admit when they were at the premiere at the end, I was really worried about seeing an adverse reaction to that film when he sat there being like, this is what I'll be remembered for, which I know is obviously done a bit tongue in cheek for the film, but I was a little bit worried about seeing Ed um, have this, this magnum opus for himself and this tribute to his Mm. friend being panned in person. Um, And I I don't know if if you guys felt the same. Yeah, because we actually get that scene in the disaster artist. Mm. We get, we get uh, what's his name sitting down, and at the premiere of the room. Oh, uh, Tommy, Tommy, why is that? Tommy, no, that's it. Yes, yeah. So, Tommy was there sitting down in the the premiere, and everyone laughing their heads off, and him feeling awful and angry. And the book that um, uh, became the, the disaster. I was book describes it as him 
getting more and more angry until he was like visibly vibrating because people were, were laughing and thinking it was a comedy and to say face he had to you know say yeah yeah it's a comedy I'm glad that scene is not in this movie. I agree with you. I think that would have undercut a lot of that optimism that was built up. Mm. We know it was a bad film. Like it's a famously bad film and it was a famously bad film before this as well. But I think we don't, I don't think the film needed to, to rag on it. Like we're already with this characters going, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. So it's like, I think that's enough. Mm. But yeah, I'm glad it didn't because it would have, I think, ruined a lot of what Edward had earned through the rest of the film in terms of like the audience being on his side. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I mean, from my point of view, what I would love to see is a film that sort of deals with the fallout from Edward, I guess, like maybe, you know, sort of looking at a character's perspective of Edward and, oh, my God, why are you so optimistic when, you know, everything is going wrong around you and your films are terrible. And But for this film in specifically where, you, yeah, you're focusing on Edward and that optimism and the... Um, and his journey, yeah, I, I would agree. I don't really think you need to see um, people reacting and thinking this is a bad film. Uh, but, yeah, it's I, I wouldn't mind seeing one of those other different perspectives. Yeah, because um, I have to admit, since, since you've said it, Carmen, it, yeah, he's a, he's a bit ir- irresponsible um, as, mm. a, as a creator, as, as someone in a position of, of power. Um, even though that power is often fabricated, um, it's on the on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, you are plucky. You you've got this, great, use it. But then on the other hand, I'm like, oh, you you kind of putting a few noses out of joint here. Like I, I felt really sorry for um for for Vampira. She just didn't want mm. to be there. It it was nice, yeah. I suppose, in a sense of when she lost her job with the TV show that there was like. A, like something for her to go into but at the same mm. time when we we learn about that in the film through ed when um when kathy sees it in the paper ed's face is not the face of oh i'm gonna help out with my friend it's aha a resource has become available to me and yeah it was a, i was a little bit conflicted at times with um with with rooting for ed in in that sense mm. <laughs> and also the bit with the um with the landlord and he invites his landlord in after the mm. check is bounced for the th- third time. And the landlord's like, oh, I always thought about, you know, doing films. And he's mm. like, ah, oh, someone else I can tap into. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Other resource entered. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, then again, I'm, I'm less empathetic uh, with the, um, I, I'm less empathetic with, with, with a, a landlord uh, being, being oh, no, no. Out, yeah. of, out of their money. But also <laughs> I, I suppose we didn't have any connection with the landlord until, he turns up in that scene, whereas exactly, we'd, we'd yeah, seen a, yeah. we'd seen a bit of Vampire throughout, and she cl- she was, I think, much more polite with Ed than she needed to be. <laughs> to be exactly, yeah. Honest. I mean, yeah. Let, let's be honest. I mean, Ed does come across as a little bit as, as, of a psychopath in how mm. he views people. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right, El- Elvira. I, I really uh, not Elvira. Sorry, Vampira. Yeah, Vampira. Um, I the whole lawsuit with that. <laughs> I know, I know. I was literally looking cooking it all up as we went um but no vampira was um was very uh a a very good person i felt like um and probably very nicely portrayed as well i don't know much about the actress who portrayed her but i thought it was a it was a good performance Mm. i can tell you something about the actress yeah tim uh would go on to marry her oh she was the, yeah, her name is Lisa Marie. She was the uh, alien lady in Mars Attacks. Another one oh, with a really big oh, yeah. yeah, okay. Walk, that was her. Oh. Uh, and then they broke up after Planet of the Apes, which uh, Helen Bottom Carter starred in. So there you go. Okay, mm. yeah. Well, I, I, did, I did not know that. Um, but, yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed a lot of this film there, there isn't actually much that I sit there and go ah I didn't I didn't really like this or didn't care for this I, I think it's very well balanced it's it's quite well paced I think for, for like a film that is over two hours it, it didn't really feel like it um no no uh, yeah and I, I feel as though it, although I can remember virtually nobody's names from this film um I, I feel as though we got to know 
some of these like side characters really well like the people that were helping out on on the films and um it was nice to get the the end credit sort of uh wrap up of what happened with all of these people after uh plan nine came out and going oh those two uh, guys who were, were acting ended up being like really famous bad movie actors which I was like that, that's really cool that oh that was Good Conrad Brooks great I, I great I've, I've now that. Mm. and um yeah it was it was nice to see that um and yeah like I really enjoyed I really enjoyed Tor Johnson but I did sit there a lot of the time going that is an extremely hairy man that that was the thing I just <laughs> couldn't, couldn't get away hey. from was just like that that is he does not need a coat in the winter. That guy is, is set. He's, it was incredible. Um, and, and really incredible um, recreations of these old films as well, because as we were watching it, I was going back and looking at like images from the films that they mm. were replicating. And it's, it's pretty incredible. Like it's, it's clear there was a lot yeah. of love for the subject and knowledge of the subject from Tim Burton and the um, creative team on this project because it looks stunning it really does mm. there's a great youtube video where they have the side by sides and it's fantastic it's really cool mm. to see yeah i'll have to look into that yeah it was it was lovely just just really lovely i i enjoyed um again bill murray has quite a small role in this film where he is i know he's not bill murray but he's basically just bill murray as um bill murray camping it up yeah as a very camp depressed um backer uh and it feels like his bits may have been semi-improvised as, as a lot of Bill Murray's stuff is, but he he just delivered it really, really nicely. Um, and with the post-Mexican the... trip story is pretty good. <laughs> as deadpan Bill Murray as you're ever going to get. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I also, I have to say, um, I really, really liked the performance of Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, she played Dolores really well and I what whilst Dolores the character is someone where I'm like okay I like bits of you and I don't like other bits of you um the, the performance itself from from um Sarah Jessica Parker was was really really something I was really surprised how how good it was not that I think she's bad I just was was really mm. blown away by it yeah she she is actually quite a good actress yeah Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember what she did on stage at one point uh, that was really well received. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like she's one of those people who um, during her career has not always been offered the roles that reflect her ability uh, mm. a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, she, she was quite enjoyable in this. Yeah. And um, yeah, just, I, I'm, I'm curious uh, as a, as a first time viewer, Carmen, um, what mm. the, the, the depictions of, uh, Ed's uh, cross-dressing, um, how, how that came across, because of course the way that we um, showcase, um, I guess what would have been called like alternate lifestyles back then, um, the way that we showcase uh, non-heteronormative or non um, sort of con conformative gender practices, I guess would be the way it would be phrased. Um, the way I feel as though the way Edward would be made today, and particularly addressing those issues, would be quite different from how this film was made almost thirty years ago. But I, I'm sort of curious, as a first-time viewer, what your thoughts were on uh, them dealing with him being a being a transvestite. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting approach. Um, first mention of it we get is when um, his girlfriend is looking through the cupboard and can't find this particular sweater and she's like why can't I never find any of my clothes and the focus shifts on him and originally I thought oh he's selling her stuff so that he can make films which right. I thought was like that's that's <laughs> disgusting why are you doing that um, and then we find out no it's because he's actually borrowing the clothes which is still not good but um, I, I feel like uh, because this was illegal in the 50s wasn't mm. it to be cross-dressing mm. we don't get a lot of that sense of how stigmatized and taboo this was um you know we get a shot of edward filming uh glenn or glenda and he's walking down the street in cross-dress and then uh the police come around and they're like oh no the police are here we don't have a permit let's run it's like hang on that i don't think the permit you're filming without a permit i don't think that would be the big issue here why are we not sort of addressing yeah. the fact that you'd be arrested for wearing these clothes you know um i, I think 
the the fact that you had so many of these um people cross-dressing in these films and they managed to get so many of them to appear on film in a time when this was illegal I think that in itself is is a really really brave thing that they would have been doing and I, I don't think that was really I mean it wasn't the focus of this film but it it's interesting that that was not really something that was addressed at all mm. it, was it illegal to cross-dress or was it illegal to be gay well I think both were pretty much seen as interchangeable at the time Mm. And well, you see that, that comes in, up too. Yeah. Like, are you a fruit? No, no, no. Yeah. No, no. Really yeah. defensive. Like, no, no, no. I like women, but I just mm. like their clothes. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. I, I like it I, integrated into his character quite quickly. So it's mm. less of an issue moving forward. And then it, it sort of goes away for quite a while. You're like, oh, yeah, he's wearing a wig and a sweater while he's directing. And then it's not until the, the Christian backers see him again at the end. And it's almost like a re-revelation of him going to the bar, meeting Orson Welles, which we should talk about, mm-hmm. um, and sort of having his perspective reaffirmed, even if it is toxic, like we've mentioned, where he's, you know, kind of just uses people to get to the next point of his, whatever his dream is. But yeah, I feel like mm. it's accepted, or at least it gets integrated into the story really quickly. With an, again, like a great scene from Sarah Jessica Parker and him, and then and Johnny Depp. And then we don't really have to worry about it too much. But yeah, it never really came up as a thing. He seemed to be quite free with it. And I don't really know much about the movement. I don't know much about the transvestism in LA in that time period. Um, I know it was a big movement in San Fran around that time, like post-World War II. And she's, you know, not too far away. And it kind of makes sense, I guess, in Hollywood for the, you know, for the quote unquote weirdos to be the ones that, have those communities there but yeah it was a really interesting addition that oh yeah this bad filmmaker oh yeah transvestite okay and then bill murray's character was a transsexual and they just didn't and couldn't get the operation you know so those are just things that are like bop 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 these are very matter of fact parts of the story but yeah they're Mm. not really dwelled on or developed beyond especially with bill murray's character just an aside Mm. give him some lines that moves on yeah yeah yeah, we don't see a lot of the wider implications mm. of that and, and what, what is at stake with that as well, yeah. And I think yeah. that that would be a, a sort of difference if the film was being made today. I feel like that would be more of a focus. Mm. It would be more mm. on um, where where Ed sits in um, in those communities and, and, and that idea of him having these two identities and he tries to work it into his films but it, in a way what I think this film does which is really interesting is Ed sort of has, has already reconciled um the his his transvestitism into who he is um it's more about how that affects uh his his partner um and obviously with Dolores she can't get past it and I I do feel as though her you know screaming and uh leaving him um was was partly justified by the fact that he wasn't treating it particularly well but also I think partly by the fact that she was disgusted by it though there wasn't really another way around it she didn't understand um why he how he could feel okay with doing that um and I think it's really interesting that we then see Conversely, uh, Kathy, who he meets towards the end of the film, played by Patricia Arquette, who he ends up getting married to, who is accepting of that fact. Um, but mm. also the way that um, Ed brings it up to Kathy is on a first date, whereas with Dolores, it's something he's hidden from her for years and then comes mm. out with it. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's intriguing. And I think it's, I, I think it's something that, um, I think this film handles it very well i think it's i think it's quite good because this film was more about the films that he was making than his personal life but i think they balance that that Mm. personal life stuff quite well uh but that's just my perspective um it's yeah it's uh, certainly covers a lot of ground this film like it goes from nothing all the way up to what, you know, quote unquote, his cinematic triumph, but his career kept going for quite a while after that. Not mm. well by any means, but he kept making films and he moved into like softcore porn. Mm. And it was, 
that was kind of where it ended up that like sort of you know late 70s mid 70s um sorry late 60s early 70s sexploitation kind of film mm. um which you know, loosely tied together and then see some boobs and then some more loose narrative whatever and it's like i wonder if plan nine was what that downfall was because he made quite a lot of films after that hang on i had a list here but he made quite a lot so he kept going so plan nine was 57 and he kept making films until 1970 or 1972 oh wow and i'm i mean i guess him quote unquote making a film is doing 20 scenes a day Mm. which is mind-boggling but yeah Mm. and then also between um glenn or glenda and bride of the monster there was actually another film that had Dolores in it called um, Jailbait, which is a film noir. So they skipped over like a fairly significant chunks of his like development as a filmmaker. Not that he ever got good, but yeah, by the, you know, by the light, late sixties, he was doing, oh, here we go. 65 orgy of the dead originally titled nudie ghoulies. This is Edward's <laughs> first plunge into the world of movie erotica. So you know, the oddly mm. featured a werewolf and a mummy and a bevy, excuse me, a bevy of dancing strippers. Okay. So, so that was 65, wasn't oh, it? 65. It was filmed okay. in Astrogen and shocking sexicolor. Wow. <laughs> I'm not sure that was like a Kodak standard film, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to know how you make sexicolor work. That sounds gross uh just before we get to the trivia section Tommy film and a daddy film really love one another that's true yes uh yeah when technicolor and monochrome really really want to get together you get sexy color um just before we i get just to- want to say as well oh, sorry to interrupt I, I do think um i don't think shooting in black and white is very easy um mm. so i i did appreciate how they did how they did it it would have been a real challenge for the lighting and the cinematography and i thought mm. they did that really well um, yeah, sorry, design, costuming, makeup, all that stuff. If you're shooting in black and white, you have to be shooting it from the start because mm. you're no longer talking about color. You're talking about tone and tone is such a narrow thing when it comes to design. Like you can have a light blue and a light green and a light yellow set. Mm. And then on film, it's all one color gray. Yeah. So like yeah. your production designer needs to be building for that stuff. Cause I've worked on films where they decided to make it black and white later and, um, it wasn't great. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of like post-production to re-time colors to be darker or lighter or whatever. Mm. But yeah, that's mm. a really good point. It's, I think it's also something that was make or break for this film. Um, it's the reason why it's on Disney Plus, in fact, Stephen, is that mm. it's owned by Disney, published through Touchstone, because no one else would give Tim Burton um, full control. Right. And one of those full mm. controls is black and white. Okay. So, we, so Disney yeah. brought it on because it made Nightmare Before Christmas and they went, I mean, okay, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Much like Mel Brooks with Young Frankenstein and no one wanted him to do that in black and white, but he mm. wanted to, so, yeah. Mm. Orson Welles turns up at the end of this film. Uh, well, Vince D'Onofrio turns up as Orson Welles, um, and it should be pointed out, Maurice LaMarche turns up as the voice of Vince D'Onofrio <laughs> as Orson Welles in this film. But, Brett, you wanted, you wanted to touch on Orson. Mostly just that it was such a, I'm not, I'm not sure if that actually happened or if that's just a, if that was a conceit of the film and the the ability to like give him an extrinsic motivation to, no, I put my foot down. This is my vision, da, da, da. And he needed, you needed someone like Orson Welles to show up and be like, yeah, making films with studios is crap and I hate it and tell me about it. But yeah, it's so funny that seeing Vincent D'Onofrio's mouth moving in here in, Maurice LaMarche's voice <laughs> coming mm. out of it. And it's, it's a total disconnect. I almost wish they just shot it from behind, like that old cinematic convention of just shooting over the shoulder with a lookalike mm. and then having the voice come out. Um, but the other thing is that obviously, you know, Maurice LaMarche is a, is a voice actor. So he would have been in a studio booth recording that. And it doesn't quite match the room. No. And that might be maybe pedantic mm. on audio, but it's, it doesn't match the room. Like there's no... There's no tone to it. There's no warmth to it. If he was in that space, like there'd be some more reverb. And, and so I'm like, oh, right at the end, you throw in this like weirdly ambitious cameo thing. And I'm like, I don't know if it worked because the whole time I'm just going, ah, 
I know that voice. I know that impression. I think I've heard him do it on like Futurama director, director commentaries and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah. Mm. Mm. It also just doesn't match um, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio visually as well. Like it's hard to imagine that voice coming out of that body. And it's a shame because Vincent D'Onofrio is such a wonderful actor and Maurice Marsh is such a wonderful voice actor and mm. it yeah. just well, doesn't quite work. Yeah. idiosyncratic accent that it's become like a pastiche of itself. So when mm. you actually go back and hear him talk, you're like, ah, oh, it's not mm. as heightened as, as I remember it. Well, the other remember. thing is at, at that time, uh, Maurice Lamarche would have been doing the brain, would have been doing his, his big awesome Wells impression for mm, Animaniacs in, and in Pinky and the Brain. So I was just really enjoying the thought of it being the mouse doing the voice recording because <laughs> I don't have a good visual image for Maurice, the person. I just imagine the brain and I'm waiting for Rob Paulson to join in with it Narf! at the end of it. Like, it was, it was, but the thing I will say, he did, is, that, he did that awesome, that um, awesome voice for like some intros and outros for the Looney Tunes cartoon, mm. where it was like a voice and all like, you know, whoever's showing up. But I remember Dot, I remember Dot talking to Orson Welles in Animaniacs and he was doing the voice then. Mm. But it's like, yeah, it's basically just, yeah, you're doing the brain, but just a little tweak. Yeah, I, I will say Vince D'Onofrio looks incredible. Like he looks exactly like Orson Welles. And it was, they, they, did, they nailed that. Um, and I don't know if it's partly because it was in black and white and they were able to do some other bits and pieces with, with makeup that you maybe couldn't normally do with a colour. Um, film but but he looked great and I, I thought they were going to do what you said and not really show his face because you have that shot where he sees Orson and it's from distance and you can go oh that's Orson Welles and then they spent a long time over Orson's shoulder when Ed is talking to him and I thought they were going to hold it like that and I'm now reflecting on it and going maybe that would have been better maybe that would have been better to keep that illusion of of Orson um, being there present because because the voice doesn't quite match with the body, as, as you say, Carmen. Mm. Um, but yes. you say you the deep fake of that scene where they've actually put Orson Welles' face over Vincent Nofro, you can see how close it is. It's mm. really incredible. Yeah. Mm. No, but uh, good, good stuff all around and a, um, a, a pretty pretty good film, I think it has to be said. Um, pretty, pretty enjoyable, interesting take on a biopic. Uh, now, would you guys like some trivia about Edward the film? Sure. Absolutely. Okay, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. Uh, one day on set, Kathy Wood, the real Kathy Wood, who married Edward, um, visited the set um, and asked to meet Johnny Depp. Um, that day, they were filming a scene where Edward was uh, looking very messed up, uh, which made Burton nervous for uh, obviously going, you know, this is the biopic we're making of your husband. He looks like shit, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, but when Depp exited his trailer, she reportedly said, yep, that's my Eddie. It's <laughs> quite that's sweet. Great. And it must be very odd for, for her at that time as well, because um, Edward, the, the real Edward, passed away in 1978. So it would have been 15 years post his his death her seeing um seeing you know her loved one portrayed by this other person and i've i've seen pictures of the real edward and unlike uh, vince d'onofrio and orson wells johnny depp doesn't look a lot like edward to me or at least um the, the, the edward that he's presented as in this film is a bit more I guess idealized, uh, maybe a bit more mm. um, sort of classically handsome, but um, mm. but then again, you know, maybe it was more important getting the the mannerisms down than than the look exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think you're right there. Mm. And maybe it's just how she remembered him in her head. Maybe he mm. he appeared more classically handsome to her. Possibly, yeah, but um, yeah, that's quite nice to be able to go. <laughs> there he is. Um, Bella Lugosi Jr.'s chief objection to the film's portrayal of his father, Bella Lugosi Sr., was his speech, as his father was reportedly a classy man who never used foul language. Uh, this has been corroborated by other people as well um, that knew him. So reportedly, um, yeah, Bella Lugosi was unlikely to sit there going, you know, look at the tits on her, or whatever it was that he said that <laughs> felt really out of place. Um, yeah, which I thought was an interesting one. It, I, I, it got me thinking how 
hard must it be to be the child of someone like Bela Lugosi or Boris Karloff, you know, someone who is going to not only outlive their own life, but outlive the lives of their children in terms of like that reputation and being so visually present at the start of like movie history. Um, because mm. conceivably, if, you know, we keep the film archives going, Bela Lugosi will be around until the fall of human civilization essentially yeah. mm. you know that's it's a pretty interesting thing and i i do think about it with people who have biopics made about them as well um you know normally they have passed on by the time the biopic is made but normally mm. their children or people who knew them intimately there are normally still people around that remember them and yeah, yeah I, I do i do find it interesting how strange it must be to be the son of Bella Lugosi and see your father being portrayed in this way by another actor. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm making it up, but I feel like Boris Karlov's son ended up doing makeup or something like that. Um, or maybe again, I am just making that up, but I guess it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it sort of pertains to this whole theme of the film was just, you know, eking out your place in the world and, and finding your, uh your calling and, and how to follow that and I guess in a way that's kind of um how things must be if you're if you're the son of someone or the daughter of someone so famous mm. um is mm. just really trying to find your own identity and that must be the real challenge and mm. especially a challenge when your name is Bella Lugosi Jr uh, like, yes like thanks dad <laughs> yeah that, that must guess, have been tricky like you see in the film people had forgotten him and people had thought he was dead, you know. So there was there was like a generational gap where people didn't even care about him anymore. And it wasn't until I guess we had the ability to go back to those old films regularly. So, you know, VHS really and, and beta to be able to go back to those old films and discover that stuff. Cause previously it was like in a cinema or on a home reel and mm. you needed a reel-to-reel player and all that kind of stuff. So like the high cause would have kept it. But yeah, I reckon it would be the video stores kept those kinds of legends alive. And now that the, you know, pop culture is so closely scrutinized and studied and talked about and dissected, those icons, yeah, are fully, fully cemented as this such an important and iconic part of filmic history. Mm. But like, you know, at the time, their careers all petered off into nothingness, really. Mm. So uh, like, I, well, I can confirm that uh, Boris Karloff uh, didn't in fact have a son. He had one child who was uh, Sarah Kar Karloff, who uh, is still with us. Um, she's mm -hmm. 83 um, uh, at time of recording. And she didn't have a career in makeup, but she has been interviewed numerous times about her father and has appeared in a lot of documentaries about the, the birth of horror. And uh, according ah. to um, this little snippet of information, uh, she's not a big fan of the horror genre in general. Uh, even though, Fair enough. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> yeah, Boris. Boris was a big part of it, but... Um, Yes, yeah. um, I think that, that that was probably someone else I was thinking of. But yes, my, my point still stands about uh, that making your own way in the world and finding your own identity. Indeed. Right. Uh, speaking yeah. of uh, playing around with those identities, though, Martin Lando's Academy Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for playing Bella Lugosi in this film marked the first time in Oscar history that a performer in any category won for playing another movie star. Oh, OK. Mm. Oh. Yeah, uh, Kate Blanchett came after that. Yeah, Kate Blanchett was the next one to do it for um, uh, the the Aviator, where she played Catherine Hepburn. Um, but uh, yeah, this was the first time someone won an Oscar for playing a famous actor from the film era, basically. So um, huh. yeah, it was a kind of a neat thing. Um, hmm. as, as you said, Brett, uh, the film was originally going to be developed away from Disney Studios. Columbia Pictures were the original developers, but the studio boss, Mark Canton, objected to it being made in black and white. Um, the film was also turned down by 20th Century Fox, Paramount Pictures and Universal Pictures and the Warner Brothers and the Warner Sister. Um, it was Walt <laughs> Disney using uh, Touchstone Pictures um, that, that allowed this film to be made as Tim Burton wanted it to be made. Mm. But yes, pretty... Off, off the back of how much money they made out of Nightmare on, uh, Before Christmas. Yeah, no, fair enough. Again, was um, it a, month, a gothic horror cartoon, I guess. 
Mm. In order to imitate Bella Lugosi's voice and mannerisms, Martin Landau watched approximately 35 of Lugosi's movies and also purchased Hungarian language tapes. With the tapes, he would, quote, literally practice the language and see where his tongue would go, end quote. When Hungarian-born director Peter Medak saw the film, he called Landau to praise him. Medak said that Landau's accent sounded spot on because, quote, you are not an actor trying to do a Hungarian accent, you are a character trying not to do one end quote <laughs> that's really impressive that mm. is yeah. A, yeah 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 and then we you know Bella Lugosi Jr he, he didn't say anything about how it sounded he just didn't like his dad cousin that was that was it <laughs> so, I, maybe I that's saying, why he was upset because it sounded so much like him yeah that that's yeah. even more if yeah. it was more of a pastiche he wouldn't have been bothered potentially yeah uh the final bit of trivia is that uh Rick Baker was very concerned about the casting of Martin Landau as Lugosi, uh, seeing how they didn't share any similar facial features. Baker, who was a big fan of Lugosi and who had known Tim Burton before the film, um, pursued the job as the makeup designer, fearing that a lesser makeup artist would do a worse job. Um, <laughs> Baker designed and created subtle appliances that would alter Landau's features to make him resemble Lugosi. Um, so there was a set of ears, a nose, a chin, and an appliance to cover up the fullness of his upper lip. Um, and this would be applied daily. Landau, Baker, um, and others would end up winning Academy Awards for their work on both the acting and the makeup, which um, is pretty cool. No. I just like Rick Baker being there going, no, I'm the person to do this. I know exactly what this needs to be. But then <laughs> I don't actually... trust anyone else. They're going to be terrible. So you're yeah. going to have me. Yeah, which feels... Um... No idea there were prosthetics that he had to wear for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It feels appropriate for an Edward film that someone on the team was like, I'm the best man for the job, sir. Let me prove it. <laughs> but in this case, yeah. actually was the best person for the job. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it. I mean, I, I watched this one because uh, we're obviously recording uh, separately. Um, we're not all just speaking into tin cans at each other in the same room. And I watched this with um, uh, Dr. Ellen Sears um, and she was commenting just how impressive the makeup was for Martin Lando and how mm. she really felt that whatever they did to particularly around his eyes was the thing that really sold it for her. You know, she was like, they really captured that that image we have of Lugosi's Dracula eyes and they they mm. transplanted it onto Landau uh, for her um, seamlessly. Like that was the thing she was really impressed with. And I, I have to agree. I think it, it really um, looked great and it enhanced a fantastic performance. And I was, I was very sad when, um, when, when Bella did pass away, even though I knew that it had to happen because I knew he died around that time. So it was, yeah, all, all in all, it was quite a, quite a touching film for a um for what is ostensibly a film about someone who wasn't very good at their job <laughs> yeah i but think you're right <laughs> a lot of people there were that's true that's true and I, I i do want to uh touch on edward the person brett just before we we finish um and, and about the the impact that these films did have because the thing is is he, he is the king of the the, the b movie horror flick like when people think of those those bad 50s sci-fi films they're almost always thinking of his films they're thinking of plan nine from outer space they're thinking of bride of the monster so so what was his um his sort of impact from from your perspective uh ed wood used a lot of stock footage in what he did like we saw that i mean for good or bad he used it a lot um and we had that great little scene of the the archivist at the studio lot so and go, oh, I've got some great stock footage and he's like I could make a movie with this I can put it all together you sort of fast forward to about the early 2000s when the internet was becoming a much more prevalent tool for people mm. and you have a lot of sort of mixed media projects media mashups you know pulling in making narratives out of stock footage exactly what he was doing back then so he is kind of revered as a pioneer of stitching together disparate pieces into something that was there um and i know i've i've given my film students exercises before where they've got five shots from different stock footage and it was their job to assemble them into an edit of some kind and then they were allowed to do a narration over the top to stitch it together and that came directly from this kind of filmmaking where the budget was less than zero so they used whatever they had which is whatever film reels were around mm. buffaloes octopus you know whatever was there so in terms of what 
he did, he was basically remixing like way back video remixing way back then um, as a means to an end. But that kind of creativity is something that you see on TikTok or something like that. Creatives now that have access to really robust tools where you can just cut stuff up and stitch it back together and do whatever you want with it. That process used to be a very manual process of getting the reel of film and cutting and taping it. And, you know, it was a very Mm. manual process. But even to stitch that stuff in, it's like, well, you know, it's going to add production value or whatever. The amount of, um, you can sort of, there's a great shot of New York City and it was in every other film from, I think, from 1987 or something to about 1997. And it was this, it was an aerial shot of New York and like every mid to low budget film used that shot because it was free. Mm. So it's this aerial shot of New York City and they all used it as their established show as soon as they're in New York City. And it's like that, that's a great example where, okay, do all these films take place in the same universe because it's the same shot? And like, mm. you can spin out all these different media theories from that. But yeah, his process of filmmaking, of just stitching everything together and even even his like one takeness and, and make it work in the edit kind of thing is a really, it was a really radical approach. Mm. Um, and you sort of compare it with what filmmakers do now, which is TikTok filmmakers will have three minutes to tell an entire story and they do it on their phone and they stitch together on the app, you know? So yeah, that kind of like guerrilla filmmaking wasn't good films, but that process of pulling in stock footage to fill up your narrative is really interesting as you track it forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting. And um, I think it's, I mean, obviously, the, the the filmmaker we know that it had the biggest impact on was Tim Burton because he went and made the film about this person that he really admired, or whose you know um, maybe his attitude he admired, if if maybe not so much the the finished product. Um, so that brings us to the end of our review, which means all we have to do is score the film. And Carmen, it was your first time watching Edward, so you get to go first. What score would you give it out of ten? Uh, I'm actually going to go quite high. I'm going to give it eight Angora sweaters out of 10. Yep. That's, that's what we're all thinking. The Angora sweaters. Um, (laughs) Bloody Angora sweaters. (laughs) I I must admit, I I don't know that I've ever worn an Angora sweater or or been near one, but they did look comfy. They're very soft. I haven't worn them, but I have, I have seen them and touched them. And I'm like, oh, I get it. I'm just thinking what a nightmare that would be to wash. (laughs) That's that's my thought. Yeah. It's a dry clean situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, dry clean only indeed. What about yourself, Brett? What would you give this film out of 10? Um, I continue to really enjoy this film. I like it because Johnny Depp is not playing Johnny Depp. So mm. you don't have that exponential depthness that you're going to get later on. Mm. Um, and it's just a really solid biopic as far as I'm concerned. It's not accurate, but it's definitely entertaining. Mm. Um, so I reckon it's probably uh, eight Orson Well voiceovers out of 10 for me. Excellent. I, I I quite liked it. I um I think it's it's a really interesting. It was a really interesting choice, I think, to to make this one to make this film at all, but two to make it the way that that Burton and the team ended up choosing to make it. And I think it works. And I think I was I was on board from the um, the credits being on the tombstones at the start, which I mm-hmm. just loved. I thought that was great. And I think the film does a really good job throughout of telling this story. At, at, at no point did I really find it outstanding, which is maybe why I'm, I'm going to be not quite as as um, as high scoring as, as the both of you. But I really, I really think this is quite a good example of making a biopic stand out using the subject matter to inform the filmmaking process. Um, I think a lot of biopics can be a bit samey uh, and can be a bit uh, dull at times, but I, I think Edward does a really good job of personalizing it to its subject matter. And um, it, it's well worth a watch. Uh, so I would give it seven and a half um, stolen octopus um, puppets out of 10. Um, Without a motor. <laughs> no motor. Yes, absolutely. No motor. And I just, that image of, Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi just thrashing around in the pool. He's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's morphined up. He's just said a load of whiskey. Yeah. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's someone who is not having a good time. <laughs> I've been on sets like that. Yeah. Pretty sure they're on morphine when they're jumping around with a stupid rubber monster, but you know. 
<laughs> but it was um it, it was a really really fun film and um uh, a really lovely choice uh, from from our audience at home and uh, Carmen and Brett thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club thank you very much for having us yeah thank you and for those of you listening at home thank you for listening in uh, this was a film that was chosen by you the audience how did they choose why our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast got to nominate the film when we said we want your biopics and then our friends over at facebook uh, got to vote for it so we can be found uh, over on the facebook website by searching for cinema catch-up club in their search bar and we can be subscribed to um soundcloud spotify itunes whatever podcasting service you use if anyone's on acast i hear that's an option so uh, yeah however <laughs> you want to uh, consume the program please do by searching for the cinema catch-up club and subscribing and uh, you'll want to be subscribing uh, so that you can get our next episode which will be our fifth birthday episode that's right the podcast is turning five years old and uh I felt old just saying that because it doesn't feel as though this thing has been going for five years. But uh, yes, we're going to be doing uh, a little bit of a celebratory episode. We're going to be celebrating by doing the same thing we do every week and reviewing a film. Uh, but it's, it should be good fun. Uh, so if you want to hear that, subscribe and you'll get that and other episodes each and every week. But that is all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye! You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.